the tools are not right here in the situation because what we do in anti-predation training is we leave the dog inside the predatory sequence. We do not interrupt the predatory motor pattern. We give them alternatives, but they still regard uh, the other animal that they see as prey. We do not change this perception mm -hmm. and you do not want your dog at home to perceive your guinea pig or your cat as prey because this might end not very well. Hello, you cat and dog people. This is It's Training Cats and Dogs, the show for pet pros and pet parents who want to level up their cat and dog coexistence skills. I am Naomi Rotenberg, a certified professional trainer who specializes in helping cats and dogs get along. And here we talk about how to get your pets or your clients' pets living safer and happier lives together. I do just want to say that I lost my voice for some reason, and I don't usually sound like this for people who are new to the podcast, so please bear with me for the intro and outro. All right, so many of my clients come to me scared that their dog sees their cat as prey, and they're worried about the cat's safety, which is totally understandable. And that's why I wanted to talk with predation substitute training extraordinaire Simone Mueller, trainer, behavior consultant, and author of books Hunting Together and Rocket Recall. I put the links to those in the show notes. And I knew if I had her on the podcast that we would get deep into what predation is, what it isn't, and how to address it both outside and inside the home. We talk about how adding a new dog to her home actually caused acute stress and medical consequences for her resident animals, why it might not really matter if your dog sees your cat as prey or just wants to play with them, and which aspects of her predation substitute training process are not appropriate for use with cats and dogs in the home. All right, let's dive into it. Hi, Simone. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, Naomi. Thank you very, very much for the invitation. I'm really excited for this episode because we're going to talk about your own animals. You have cats and dogs and also your specialty, which is predation in dogs and how those may or may not, spoiler alert, they don't work together in terms of what you teach people to do with predation for dogs outside versus dogs and cats inside. But we're going to get way into that. But first, I want to get to know you a little bit and for our listeners to get to know you. So you've prepared our favorite game, Two Truths and a Lie, for me. And I would like to play and see whether I can guess the lie. Okay, so I have to admit I'm very bad at this, but I will give it a try. <laughs> so the first one is uh, my favorite travel destination is New York City. Okay. The second is I studied in Taiwan for one year. And the third one is I work with wolves. Okay. The I work with wolves could be to throw me off the scent because, haha, scent, get it? Okay. I hope that you tell me that you studied in Taiwan. And I hope that the lie is that you like New York because I lived in New York and it is overwhelming as all get out. So is that the lie? Yes, it is. It was yes! easy. <laughs> no, 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 no. It was more like personal, like I need this to be true. <laughs> I chose this because I am going to visit New York next week for the first time in my life. 
So, <gasps> yeah. <laughs> New York City is a wonderfully intense place, but I am I am not a city girl at heart. Okay, so you do work with wolves. Sounds right up your alley. I work in wolf monitoring in Germany as a volunteer. <laughs> cool. So you're not actually doing any training. You're thinking about like movement and population and all of that stuff. Exactly. And uh, protection of animals from wolves and stuff like that. And documenting where the wolf have, has been and when a wolf has been killed, what killed him, things like that. That's fascinating. So let's talk first about your pets and kind of your life story a little bit. <laughs> Tell me about the dogs and cats you live with and kind of who came first, what their relationships are, all that stuff. Yeah. So literally I have been living with cats and dogs all my life. We had the first cat when I was, I think, four years old and the first dog as well in my family. So we always had cats and dogs and I always feel confused when people ask me, are you a cat or a a dog person I'm like whoa what question is that because I could never decide between the two so yeah it uh, it is totally enriching to live with both species in this mm -hmm. at least what I think and uh, so far I have always been lucky I have to say they always get along with each other quite well and yeah so we had the the family dog and the family cat when I was a kid and then I had my first own dog and when she was two years old the first own cat moved in as well I found her on a on a farm she was abandoned at the moment I have two dogs and two cats and I think this is the ideal amount of pets for me two dogs two cats <laughs> more is my is a bit stressful <laughs> I have to say definitely <laughs> and but i i don't I, oh, I wouldn't want to live with just one cat or one dog so two and two is perfect for me i think <laughs> yeah i have four beings that i am in charge of one cat one dog two human mm -hmm. children i think four is like definitely the limit of yes, like the is. amount of you that you can focus on, at least for me. So tell me about your current animals, what their names are, and tell us a little bit about them. Yeah, so Nanook is my older dog. He's now 12 years old. He's an Australian Shepherd. And funnily, he moved in the day that my two cats were born. It was a total coincidence. My, my mom had a cat from rescue, and she was pregnant but we didn't know about that when we got her from the she was taken away from an animal hoarder who also breathed with her bred with her she was a Maine Coon and the day she had her four babies was the day that my dog moved in as a puppy as an eight weeks old puppy so basically my two cats that I kept two we gave away to friends but two of the the kittens we kept and these two and my dog my older dog grew up together so they are now all 12 years old <laughs> and oh yeah God. and three yeah. years ago Isla moved in she's the second dog my Australian Shepherd after my older dog had died and this was quite a stressful time I have to say because Isla is really lively and very I always say she's a flower child. If she was a human, she would be a hippie dancing somewhere on the beach in Bali or something. And it was a very stressful time for my cats who, and also for, for Nanook, who had already been, I think they were nine years at this time. So not the youngest mm -hmm. anymore. So how did you work through that puppy 
energy that didn't really jive with the three musketeers. Yeah, so I have to say that we really had to keep Nanook and Ayla separate indoors for eight weeks. Otherwise, I would I would have been afraid that Nanook would literally killed her. So maybe not on purpose, but maybe by accident. He didn't really like her in the the beginning. She was too young. (laughs) She was too boisterous. And he couldn't manage that very well. So we had crates. We had X-pens. We had baby gates up. And for my cats, we have those high retreats, like a a catwalk, so they can move Mm -hmm. from one room to the other room. But still, for my female cat, for Mia, this was so stressful that she collapsed one day. And uh, we had to, yeah, it was really scary. She she was lying on the floor and couldn't move anymore. And then we took her to the emergency vet because, of course, it was Sunday morning at six (laughs) o'clock. It always happens on a Sunday. Mm-hmm. And the, the the emergency vet said, is there anything stressful in her life going on at the moment? Because he, sa- he said she was having, I'm searching for the English word here, when you have problems with your stomach. Um, like GI issues, gastrointestinal Exactly. Issues. So too mm-hmm. much acid in her stomach. Mm-hmm. And this was making her feel sick and her whole body couldn't cope with this anymore. And then we said, yeah, we have a new puppy. And he was like, yeah, I guess this is it because he couldn't find anything going on with her in terms of illnesses. And she really had to get accustomed to this change in her life. Yeah, that's that's really an intense reaction. So one of the questions that I have in my intake form for my new cat dog clients is like, are any of your animals experiencing acute stress? Because, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's relatively baseline amount of stress that you can expect from any animals when they're trying to navigate conflict. Yeah. But if someone is having medical <laughs> issues, like over grooming in cats and urinary things, all of that stuff, like emergency different things need to be done. So besides for kind of giving it time, were you able to find solutions to get her more comfortable? Yeah. So we allowed them more space because at this time I was living on my own and I only had a very little flat. So what we did is basically we moved the cats to my parents' house, but I went there too. So we all went to a bigger house where there are two floors and where the cats could retreat more easily and they can also use the garden. So they had a little bit more space and more yeah, distractions from this little puppy because in a in a two two room flat, very small flat, it was too crowded for them all. That's amazing that you were able to do that. Space yeah. is so important. Mm-hmm. Just the way the house is set up can make yeah. such a huge difference. So I'm glad that you were able to figure out that option yeah and she had more opportunities for different types of behaviors as well like being able to go outside and things like that and i think the garden outside is priceless for them because there is so much going on they can show so many as you just said they can show so many exploration behavior and yeah this was really good for them and of course medication so we had her stomach under control and then yeah we just gave it time (laughs) well the puppy also grew up a little bit. And I'm assuming you did some training, working on some relaxation, perhaps a little more chill. Did she become chiller <laughs> ever? Yeah. So there is a nice game that I normally play with dogs to get them to become more familiar with each other. 
but you can totally play this with your cat too where you you just say the name and you feed a treat and then you say the name of the other pet and you feed the treat to them as well so they learn that the name and the sight of this other animal becomes a predictor for something good to happen actually because they will get a treat after that and we played this a lot with the cats and the dogs <laughs> and yeah it was quite good yeah i love that name game once yeah. they've gotten kind of over that we cannot see each other without going bananas then you can kind of start bringing that into the rotation of just like oh look we can all be in the same space and eat food and everything yeah. is lovely <laughs> let's have a tea party even if there's barriers between them and everything it's a nice kind of mini milestone to be able to get to yeah that's true you mentioned before like you were worried that nanook might hurt isla and this is a good transition i think to your work in predation because there's a lot of questions that I get from, you know, focusing on cat dog stuff. Everyone, <laughs> not, not, okay. Not everyone, but a lot of like the FAQs that I get have the word predatory or predation somewhere in there. And so we are a podcast centered around cats and dogs, but we want to talk about predation in dogs in general, because I think there's a lot of people who don't really get it. <laughs> and so they think that like any chase of an animal is predation or is it? I don't know. So let's talk about that a little bit. I'm just going to throw out some questions that I get that I would love to have you address for listeners. And we can start with that initial, like, I'm not sure if he was going to hurt her. Yeah. So how can you tell whether a dog is going to be predatory towards another animal? Yeah. So I get this question a lot when people talk about predation and they are not sure, is it aggression? Is it predation? Is it both? So the terms get mixed up a lot. So I've, I've even heard predatory aggression. And this, this term doesn't make sense. Because the, the difference between aggression and predation is that in aggression, you want something to go away. This is what mm -hmm. Nanook wanted to do with Isla. He wanted her to go away. Mm -hmm. <laughs> predation is something different. Predation is that the, the animal or the, the predator wants to get closer to the animal. He wants to catch the prey. And... Mm -hmm. um, well, the outcome pretty much looks the same. If you have it in your house, it's not a good thing because right. someone might get hurt. So when I get questions about cats and dogs or other pets and dogs, I don't look too much into what is the motivation behind this. I rather get into training straight away because sometimes it's not clearly obvious and it doesn't make sense to, to stay there too long and to try to figure out what it is. Yeah, so it's better to, to get training. <laughs> Yeah. So if I'm understanding correctly, it's basically like if you have a dog who is lungy, chasey at someone else in your house, whether it's because they want to be big and scary and make that thing go away, or they want to very quickly get towards that thing, yeah. <laughs> whether to play or to eat it, that, that behavior is just not okay safety-wise, no matter what the reasoning behind it is and we would address it in a similar way anyway exactly. yeah so yeah. who cares well i think that so many people are like they they feel like they need to know because in case there's like a management fail which management always does fail in some way like am i gonna come home to a dead cat i get that fear me too totally <laughs> 
Yeah. Do you have any suggestions for people who are really having those thoughts in terms of what behaviors to look for in their dogs? Well, if you want to find out if your dog is really predatory in a certain moment, you can look at his body language. Because when a dog wants to get closer to a certain animal, they normally get into a stalk, which means that their body is really getting arrow-shaped, pointing totally towards this particular trigger or this particular animal and the the whole body got tense the ears are pointing forward the eyes are glued to this very animal and it's very very hard to interrupt them in this very moment but still here sometimes fear looks the same so we can never really be sure what the motivation behind this is so some dogs it is their strategy to make another animal go away by staring at them it's like a staring contest who moves first and yeah but predation is never about fear it's never a fear related behavior so yeah <laughs> it's it's not easy to tell predation from other motivations but still you can look out for this arrow shape posture yeah i think this is the easiest way to spot it so the question that i get a lot then is for people who do see that type of stocky freezy very stiff behavior from their dogs so i'm like picturing one particular dog right now whose nose was like at the door and they were just stuck. This is fairly recent. <laughs> so I can just like see it in my mind. Yeah, you can't you can't do anything to dissuade them from that position. Let's assume that they're in predation mode there. What do you do? A, how do you get them out of that in that moment? Because, right, like they're stuck. And then how do you work through it? How do you assess whether it's going to be even safe for them to live with whatever thing they're predating towards that's not the right words but yeah predating seeing seeing as prey yeah so when i'm outside with my dogs this is what predation substitute training normally is about that you do it with wildlife when you're out and about and you, mm -hmm. your dog is already in this very tense stalking mode where they are stuck and they cannot move anymore then you are already too close so you cannot mm -hmm. work anymore in terms of training because for training you always need a, a brain that is in a thinking state and in this moment they are not in a thinking state anymore they are clearly gone <laughs> wherever <Yeah. laughs> um, exactly. hello <laughs> so what you basically do is you have to get them out of the situation and create some more distance. And uh, you, there are some techniques that sometimes still work. For example, you can try a kissy noise, like, or you can wave your hand in front of their eyes, give them a short, mm -hmm. swift wave in front of their eyes to disconnect the stare for a mm -hmm. second, and then immediately move back into the other direction and try to take them with you, not literally by pulling the leash, but by pulling them back with your body language. I mm -hmm. hope you get what I mean. But sometimes even this doesn't work anymore. So the last resort would be grab the harness and uh, get out of the situation. You are coming with me, friend. <laughs> yeah, this would be the very, very last management resort when everything else fails. But to work with predation, you have to start st way before this moment. So your aim is that your dog does not get that deep into their stare or you try to get a foot into the door before that and work with them. Yeah, that's okay. Good. That's what I do. I'm so pleased. I'm always happy when I'm like, this is corroborating what I do with my clients. Yeah, so if you 
our information gathering or your management is not up to snuff in terms of giving them the distance that they need to be able to exist in a non-stalking state. That's that's where you, what you need to find out first, right? If there is no place in the house where they can be out of hypervigilant stalk mode, then you're kind of screwed. We could talk about visual barriers. We could talk about like distance diagonally, like you were talking about two floors of a mm-hmm. house, you know, the longest side of a triangle of a right triangle is going to be the hypotenuse. <laughs> Good mm-hmm. job, geometry. So like, you could talk about is there any distance where the cat could be up and the dog could be down that might give you those extra two or three feet that you need. But yeah, sometimes it just doesn't. <laughs> you can't get in to that to that brain space. So there, it seems like you're alluding to kind of the elephant in the room here, which is people who have questions about predation in their house between their dog and their cat. There's some concepts about predation in general that we can talk about, but the techniques that you talk about in predation substitute training are not for that situation. It's specifically like you were saying for wildlife and out in large spaces and i'm assuming like community cats like out in the world that you're not going to want to hang out with we could treat them like squirrels yeah exactly (laughs) so we'll we'll put aside cats and dogs for a second because i think everyone's going to want to know about predation substitute training anyway because it's fascinating do you want to give us (laughs) a little bit of background and how you got into predation work in the first place and then we'll mosey back to cats and dogs I think it all started with my own dog I think so many dog trainers have this said it all started Mm -hmm. with one particular dog and it was my first own dog that I had when I was in my early 20s she was an Austrian shepherd mix and she (laughs) she was such a big hunter I, I don't think in retrospective she was that a big hunter because I think if I had her now, she would be handled quite, yeah, okay. But by that time, I didn't know anything about anti-predation trainings and what to do with this. And so I was totally on my own and I didn't know what to do. And so I went to some dog trainers, but nobody could help me. I went to a dog club and they couldn't help me either. And then I read the first book that was coming out at this time about force-free anti-predation training. And I think this was a game changer for me because I I figured out pretty soon at this time, e-collars were still allowed in Germany, but I didn't want to try it. So I ended up with a leash. (laughs) (laughs) Keep your dog on a leash. Okay, thank you. (laughs) And then the first book came out about anti-predation training. And yeah, it was really a game changer for me. I remember that I, I read it on my holidays and I didn't have my dog with me at this time. And I was so eager to come home again to give it all a try. I could hardly wait for the holidays to be over. <laughs> and then years later, I started my dog trainer education and we learned about force-free interpretation trainings as well. And I totally thought, well, this is where I want to yeah, delve deeper into this topic because it's so fascinating and interesting. And I live in a rural area so many people come to me and tell me I want to have my dog off leash or my dog is chasing X, Y, Z. And you need it all the time as a dog trainer, at least here in Germany. So 
we could keep our dogs on leash. So everyone's going to say, oh, keep them on a long line. But even if they're on a long line, they're still going to show some predation behaviors. So can you talk through a little bit about what the predatory sequence is? And let's say the first few steps of what people are looking for. So predation is sequence. So it's not just one single behavior that the dog shows. It is a chain of behavior. And it starts with orienting in the environment. So your dog might search for something to hunt. I guess you have seen that in your own dog when you, for example, come out of a wood or you reach the top of a hill and suddenly your dog stops and looks around. Mm-hmm. So this is the fir- very first step of predation. They look around to gather information. Is there something dangerous or is there a potential partner or is there mm-hmm. something to hunt? And uh, some dogs do this with their eyes. Some dogs prefer their noses down on the ground. If you think of a spaniel, for example, some dogs like it with their nose up in the air, air scenting. A lot of gun dog breeds do that all the time. Or some dogs even use their ears together those information is their prey around Mm -hmm. and uh, if there is something around that they are interested in then they go into the stalk this is what we just talked about that the body goes very stiff and intense and pointed to this very trigger in the environment and what happens next is that they go into a creep they creep forward. Some dogs have that in their genes a lot. For example, border collies creep all the time. They love to creep. Some dogs do not do it at all. It has been bred out or they do not enjoy it. And the creep is there to bridge the gap between themselves and the prey animal because prey animal are quite fast. <laughs> so think of a deer with very long legs. The legs are so long for a reason because there was evolution and they had to run away from predators. This is why their legs are so long. They are very, very quick. And the dog is not that quick or the predator is not that quick. So they try to get as close as possible. And the moment they think, yes, now I can bridge the gap. Now I will be fast enough to reach this animal. Then they go into the chase. And this is the moment where the dog owners realize, oh, my dog is hunting. (laughs) But you see that there was so much before that chase that goes Mm -hmm. unnoticed. And during everything that comes before the chase, we still have time to interact with our dog or to interrupt it or to ask them to do something else. And when they go into the chase, normally it's over. (laughs) So Yeah. yeah, they are like in a tunnel. And then if the predator is, I say, lucky and they can make prey, they grab it, they shake it, they kill, and then they start to dissect and eat. And then the behavior chain has come to an end. So we talked about the stalking before as kind of like it's over in terms of training because they're already in this kind of tunnel vision situation but then you just said oh but like before the chase you can do stuff so what's the what's the stuff yeah (laughs) what's going on there what's the the difference force free predation training to be successful has various elements it's not something that you can fix in a session it's like lifelong learning for the handler and for the dog as well and there are 
a lot of things that the handlers or the owners have to incorporate into their everyday life, into their training, into their walks to make the training successful. So it's not a quick fix, actually. But there are, I think, four components that you can define that you need to incorporate into your training. And if you leave out one, the training will not be very successful. So the first component is that you have management and prevention. Yeah, the easiest thing would be put your dog on a leash. But there is much more than that. For example, even if you have your dog on a long line, as you said before, they will still go hunting in a kind of way. Or it will be very frustrating for your owners because the dog is at the end of the long line all the time pulling forward. So you have to do something like staying in touch with your dog in terms of communication. You teach your dog to stay on a path, not roam the bushes searching for something. You teach them to look at you from time to time. You teach them to stay in a certain parameter around you. This is all management and prevention. And then there are some tools that you need for when you are in this particular situation. So when you come across a deer, a squirrel, a rabbit, a boar, yeah, so you need a tool that you use with your dog in this very situation. And here, this is from a dog trainer perspective, a tricky part because as a trainer, I always tell people not to train in the situation, but for the situation. Mm-hmm. And here, when we deal with predation, to some extent, we need to train in the situation because if your dog is not in a hunting mood, you cannot train. So it's quite tricky. So you tell your clients to go outside, search animals to hunt. I don't mean like search running through the woods, but you go to areas where it is highly likely that you meet animals on your way anyway, and then you train those tools. And then the third component is that you need to give your dogs outlets for their predatory energy because the tools that we talk about are connected with impulse control. So they cost a lot of impulse control and the dog can only sustain this impulse control in a situation when they have an outlet for their energy in other situations. So Mm -hmm. what you basically do is you have a look at the I always call it the hobby. What was your dog bred for? Or if you have a a mixed breed, what does your dog enjoy? And then you take those parts of the predatory sequence and you play games as an outlet for those particular parts of the sequence. So, for example, if your dog enjoys stalking, for example, a border collie loves to stalk. So you give them games that are connected with stalking. Or if you have a dog that loves to chase, you give them... A chase game. And here I think there is a good overlap for dealing with predation inside the home. Even if you cannot use the tools because they are they go against what you want to achieve in a home situation, you can still give your dogs outlets because they have those needs. They want to <laughs> kill and catch and it's it's not appropriate for them, but they don't know that. <laughs> so you have to give them substitutes, you have to give them outlets where they can yeah, let out this energy and kill a stuffed animal or a paper bag or something like this. Yes, that's a huge component of the programs that I have as well. Management enrichment is first. That's that's. It's nothing new under the sun. Everyone should do that. But in those particular things, like those specific behaviors need to have an outlet. 
And then the fourth part is an interrupter because it, it will happen that your dog goes over threshold, the deer was too fast or the rabbit was too too close and your dog will go into a chase so you need a solid recall or an interrupter in any form it can be a, a down or a sit or a recall or a u-turn that is trained so well that your dog will be able to follow it even when they are highly distracted when there is something running off yeah so the question might be if you have that why do you need the other stuff <laughs> You don't. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, yeah, no, really, there there are dogs that come to me or their owners come to me and we have a look at the and the individual dog and how big is their passion for hunting, what were they bred to do, and then it is enough to train a super strong recall or if you have a dog that loves to or is, is bred to, to be stopped when, when an animal runs away, for example, some gun dogs, the, the hunter doesn't want them to move when they want to shoot. So they are bred for going into a down, going into a sit and staying put where they are so that the hunter can shoot. And they still have this in their genes. So instead of going through the whole uh, four components of predation substitute training, I teach with them to to sit. It can be quite simple. It's not always the case, but sometimes it is, yeah, it's enough. It's so useful to think about even though in our case, you know, coming back to cats and dogs in the house, we can't use all four of the components, especially I think number two is what you're mentioning is like specific to the types of training that you're talking about with wildlife. We can do management, we can do enrichment that deals with the specific behaviors in the predatory sequence that they need to get out in some way. And yeah, we got to do an interrupter, got to do an interrupter in some way. And so I know you have a book specifically about recall and how to make that really strong. So I will link that in the show notes for people who are like, how do I train an interrupter that's so good that if my dog is in predation mode, like it's going to turn around and come back to me. That's a whole nother podcast episode that we may or may not want to do. Because yeah. yeah, it sounds so simple, theoretically, but it takes a lot of work. Um, it is. Oh, yeah, it takes a lot of work. And the work is never done, actually. So just to give you expectation management, <laughs> I talk about this with my with my clients all the time. For example, in Germany, we have those gun dog examinations. So mm -hmm. they have to go through certain exams to be able to go into breeding or to be used as a gun dog. And here the dog has to be three years old before the, the examiner expects the dog to really stop in front of running wildlife so if the puppy or the one-year-old or the two-year-old dog runs off they still do not fail this examination they have to be three years old until they can be expected to stop in such a situation and here i think this is something that people do not realize that they have to repeat 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 and scaffold this behavior thoroughly in order to get to such a point it's really a chore it's not something that comes overnight with one or two training sessions it doesn't mean that there cannot be successes before that but to have it really solid and really reliable functioning in i think 99 of the time the dog has to mature it has to go a certain process that's so fascinating and i love that tidbit about the three years because one of the questions I always get is like, how long is this going to take? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> At least for the dogs that are going into predation, 
like at the site of the cat, we are working together actively at least six months. Yeah. At the very least, you're not just spending six months teaching a recall. It's not just going to be like slog for six months. Everything is terrible, but you need to be able to trust your animals. You need to be able to trust yourself to be able to figure out like what to do in any situation that might be going to shit. So I love the expectation management. And there are so many wonderful clients who come to me and they already have some pretty good expectations. And I love not having to have that conversation because we're trying to like, de-innate behavior. That's not a word. You know what I mean? We're trying to work against behavior that is so, so strong. A lot of times you can get really far, but like you can't just get rid of it. It's not a thing. But I think the good thing is that a lot of clients, they are happy about first steps as well because they have tried so much and they have been demotivated <laughs> and depressed by this behavior that when we achieve little milestones they are already quite happy so it's always in in us trainers i think that we know the end result and we want to work towards this but the clients they are quite happy with some little outcomes as well it doesn't mean that they have to stick there forever but it's not that depressing for them anymore the situation can be relieved quite easily yeah that all or nothing feeling as a person who's like in the trenches of dealing with a behavior that is stressful. So not even predation. Yeah. Just any person who's has animals that are stressing them out. To go to someone and hear them say, I can't do anything for you, like nothing. You were like, I'm going to seek out every possible piece of information because it can't be nothing. It's not like I can't do anything. You got to move the needle like a little bit. What do you mean you can't do anything? Anyway, but then there's the people who promise the whole world. So it's this all or nothing thing. And I like with anything that's good in this life it's in between exactly yeah so for listeners who are saying oh my dog is predatory outside and predatory inside toward my other animals because we do have some of those what do you think is the right way to go in terms of skills to work on first that ideally will work both in the house and start to work out of the house too Yeah, well, I think you should start working in the house first because this should be your priority. You are in the house almost all the time and you might be out for one or two hours a day with your dog and you need to live in your house. So I would always go this route first and then have them on a long line or on a leash as a management outside before starting with the work outside. You are the expert on the inside part. I, I don't know anything about it or it, just a little, but the dog can really well distinguish between the animals that live outside and the animals that live inside. I guess everybody who has a dog who loves to chase cats but has a cat at home, the mm -hmm. dog is getting along quite well with, knows that the dog can totally distinguish between my cat at home, <laughs> we do not chase, we cuddle on the sofa, and outside, <laughs> yeah, I want to chase you, yeah, because it's a strange cat, it's a different cat. And I get a lot of people asking me, can I use predation substitute training with my cats? with my chickens, with my guinea pigs. And I always say, no, sorry, you can still buy the book, of course. <laughs> you can look into the games and you can do the management, but the the tools are not right here in the situation because what we do in anti-predation training is we leave the dog inside the predatory sequence. We do not interrupt the predatory 
motor pattern, we give them alternatives. So for example, the most obvious alternative is you cannot chase a deer or a cat, but you can watch it as long as you want to. So the dog can still experience all those nice, happy hormones, mainly dopamine in this very moment that they experience when they chase, but they cannot do this physically with their legs. They do it only with their mm -hmm. eyes, but they do not have to leave this all behind and do something completely else with you. For example, if you ask your dog to go away with me into the other direction and your dog is like, whoa, why? <laughs> I want to do that because this is so important for me. And by giving giving them at least something, they are more willing to cooperate with us. But the downside of this is that they still regard the other animal that they see as prey. We do not change this perception. Mm -hmm. And you do not want your dog at home to perceive your guinea pig or your cat as prey, because this might end not very well. <laughs> yeah, Wait, that's, the, that's the overarching goal <laughs> to... See them as my cat versus random cat that I can predate. That is a lovely soundbite. Thank you. We still want to keep them outside thinking that the cat is prey, the outdoor cats, so that they can get that feeling fulfilled. Like it's not just the behaviors, but it's the neural pathways and all of the hormones and stuff that goes along with going through that behavior sequence. Yeah. I love yeah. that. And of course, I have to mention this here, we even with predation substitute training, even with the dogs perceiving other animals outside as prey, we have to keep everybody safe. So it's not that we allow them to kill a cat or chase a cat or something. This is one of the main principle in predation substitute training that you always have to keep everybody safe. And everybody means you, your dog and the other animals. So we have to take care of three living beings here, but you still don't want to have that in your house. So in order to figure out how to do that, everyone should buy Simone's book. <laughs> that's, that's the shameless plug. One of the reasons that I wanted to have you on was because we need to make that distinction, right? Mm -hmm. Like even learning so much about predation and how it works when it is appropriate outside, like we can then say, okay, that is not what I want in my house. And I always find that having differentiation is really helpful when behaviors look the same. It's just the context that's different. Once they've gotten over that initial behavior of, I'm going to move towards that smaller thing, gotten over the hump where it's not immediately a safety issue. Is there a chance that if the dog started out as being predatory, that you would get some kind of like recidivism <laughs> where they would snap into predatory sequence, even if you've been doing all of this training to leave the cat, all of that stuff, and we're trying to move them away from thinking that the cat is prey, but how do we really know that there's not going to be like a predatory drift scenario? That seems like why we would need to know at the beginning, whether they're having a predatory feeling or a just intense go away or like, I want to play. You wouldn't, you theoretically wouldn't need to worry that much about regressions <laughs> further along the training program if yeah. it's not predatory in the beginning. 
Yeah, sure. There are points that you can assess here. The most easy assessment that you can do is you can ask for a dog's history. So if they have already caught an animal, they killed it, then the, the prognosis is not so very good. So the more experience the dog has with solo hunting, the prognosis is not as good as when you start with a puppy or you start with a dog that has only medium prey drive, for example, chasing, and that is it. So you always have to look at the individual dog. You have to look at genetics, what were they made for. For example, if you have a dog that was bred for grabbing and shaking, swiftly like little terriers do this can be more tricky yeah so basically you look at the dog's age you look at genetics you do you look at learning experiences and this all goes into the prognosis but as you said you already mentioned the word predatory drift this is something that can happen predatory drift i don't know if all the listeners are familiar with the term let's define <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is when a dog mistakes another animal or a child, for example, or a little dog for prey. It sometimes happens when dogs play with each other, especially larger dogs play with a small dog and suddenly the larger dogs go into hunting mode, might be triggered by a movement or by a sound that the other animal, the little dog or the child or the guinea pig or whatever mm -hmm. made in this very moment. And this is something that can happen. And uh, yeah, you have to be aware of that. I, I just saw the other day a video of two dogs. One had a seizure and uh, was stumbling across the room. And the other dogs immediately went at the other dog and wanted to pin the dog down. And then the caption was, my dog wants to help the other dog. And this is so bizarre because it's not about helping. It's about bizarre movements that, the other dog is not used to and this might trigger a predatory reaction so when you leave your pets alone i would always go for management and separation in this case not take any risks yeah i think that's really really important you're always going to want to tailor the management for when you're not present or able to supervise to be conservative and especially when you've been working pretty hard and it's still unclear about what the dog would do if the right circumstances arose. If there's a history, you, unfortunately, you probably can't trust that dog 100% ever. So that's, again, one of, that's one of the questions I ask in my intake. Have they ever bitten, hurt, or killed another animal? And it doesn't mean, I want to say, it doesn't mean like that's an automatic disqualification. It just means that we're going to pay a lot more attention to management. We're going to have more layers of physical management. We're going to make sure that our positive interrupters are solid as hell because that physical management will probably fail at some point. And unfortunately, it indicates much more of a serious project <laughs> on, yeah. your, on your hands and expectation management going into that as well. I'm glad we covered that because... You could be doing this for years and everything is quote unquote fine. And then there's a predatory drift issue that, you know, you wouldn't have seen. What's really interesting is the breakdown of the breeds of dogs that I tend to see come through my program. Like we have a lot of shepherds, <laughs> a lot, but they stop, right? When the cats yeah. stop, they stop because that's what they're bred to do. There's a lot of chasing. The cat still hates it. It's not like 
it's all fine because the shepherd, they didn't hurt the cat. So I don't need to deal with this. Of course, we need to deal with it. It's not an appropriate behavior, but there isn't as much of a safety concern often with these types of dogs. And then we have the Pibbles, again, terriers, Mm -hmm. a little more ambiguous in terms of what their predation history might be sometimes, especially like in a rescue situation, we might not know. And then we see other kind of miscellaneous <laughs> dogs where we don't even know what the breed is at all. So there's there's definitely a little bit of patterns in what we can expect, like you were saying, from the genetics. And there's a lot of detective work as well. That's important. And I think it's so funny that you just mentioned the bull breeds because they are rarely in my training because outside they were not made to chase. They rather stop and look And the owner doesn't even realize my dog is hunting at this very moment. But the moment they have a close opportunity, they grab. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So I rarely have wolf breeds that chase rather grab. And then I have to say, sorry, this training is not the right training for you. But you can always do something with the owners to make them more happy. <laughs> But it's quite nice that you mentioned this because this is the typical situation that these dogs react in. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, right, I'm working with animals that are in closer quarters and I'm picturing the bully pounce, right? Mm -hmm. They're they're still moving forward at a high rate. They're kind of like bowling balls, but then there is that open mouth thing at the end that you're like, I don't know how this could go. So yeah, that's definitely where I rely on history a lot because they don't show the, the typical stalking stuff. No, <laughs> they go straight for the real thing. I'm like, well, we'll see. I think people also get very worried about the stock when their dog gets stuck in the stock. And if we can't teach them to break out of the stock, then we might not be able to get very far. But yeah. once we make that a pattern of they're looking for one or two seconds and then we can call them away pretty easily, I tend to see really good success once you kind of stopped that predation sequence at the beginning. But If you're working a lot <laughs> on disengagement and you're not really getting that far, that's also a red flag for yeah. things not going so well. One thing we haven't talked about, we talked about the safety of the quote unquote prey. We haven't talked about the behavior of the prey and how that might affect the dog's behavior. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> theoretically, moving away from the dog aka running away from the dog, is going to trigger the most intense predatory behavior. Of course, right? yeah. Okay. And moving away from a close proximity and in a swift movement. <laughs> this is the <laughs> squirrel. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so this is something that, yeah, when I talk about the tools and the interrupter, there has to be this distinction. What is fair to expect from the dog? I simply cannot expect from my dog when there is a squirrel or a cat outdoors running directly from underneath the car and uh, from underneath the parking car, obviously, mm -hmm. and the dog is maybe one meter away. And then I cannot expect my dog to stop and stalk calmly and do this alternative behavior because this is too much. They are already over threshold in this very moment. So I only ask my dog for these alternative behaviors when the animal is quite far away, when it's not 
moving that fast. Maybe later on, the movement can be faster and the dog can still cope with it. But in the beginning, it would be too much. So what we do here is we go for an interrupter. And this interrupter means getting out of the situation, creating more distance, going off into the opposite direction. Yeah, I think think this is important to understand that I see that a lot of on social media now that people let their dogs watch and stalk and it's nice, but doing this, it has to be fair. It needs a lot of impulse control and the dog simply cannot cope with the situation if the squirrel runs up the tree straight in, in front of them. So this makes a huge difference. And I always tell my clients to start the stalking alternative behavior with something as easy as a cow in the field, for example. So there is a cow 200 meters away, grazing, moving, almost not at all. And this is the right animal to start with, to teach your dog calmness around wildlife, that they actually can stand and watch without decreasing distance to this cow or whatever. And when they come across a squirrel or a cat, get out of the situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That parallels a lot with the setups that I recommend people do when we have a dog like this, where we start with as much distance as possible and we have the cat remain stationary, ideally elevated and unlikely to jump off and with a suicide mission. So (laughs) that's the goal, right? For that first setup where it's like, oh, I can do normal dog things in that situation because they are not acting like prey at this moment. And then we very slowly layer in calm movement, like targeting from one spot to the next where the cat is just like very slowly walking. And then we work on things like ping pong, right? Following a toss treat where they might kind of trot, (laughs) but this is side to side importantly. So it's not that front to back. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. We work up to that with first is like Super Bowls from Leslie McDevitt, where it's, Mm -hmm. you know, slow station to station movement. But that is front to back, forward, back, forward, back. Wow. That's awesome. And then we see we might end there. Right. (laughs) Because it's not fair to expect a dog to be able to calmly watch a cat like booking it away from them. So that's where, you know, our interrupters are going to be helpful as well. So I am seeing a lot of parallels. So I'm yeah, glad that. definitely. And I, I'm glad that you brought up Leslie McDevitt's games, because I think for those close encounters in a narrowed space, they are perfect because they keep the dog thinking in a thinking state. And yeah, it's perfect for this, for this type of training. I love it. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I know everyone is going to be so happy to listen to this perspective and learn a lot about predation in general and the differences between dog predating inside, dog predating outside. And I think it's going to clear up a lot of things that people might be (laughs) thinking about. So everyone should definitely hit the show notes for Simone's books and website and Instagram. I will link all of that. And even if you're working on inside stuff, buy her book anyway, because it's probably going to be really interesting for you. I get asked about predation so much that I decided to make a free resource for you all. 
If you go to praiseworthypets.com slash predation, you can download my interrupt the sequence cheat sheet, which lays out how to respond to your dog depending on what part of the predatory sequence they're currently in. The link is also in the show notes and my Instagram link in bio. And my wonderful listeners, please help spread the word about the podcast by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. Or you can tap the share button in your podcast app, I just discovered this, to send this episode or any others over to the other cat and dog people in your life. Pretty fancy. And if you want to be extra cool, you can post about the episode on your social media because that's a thing that people look at. And all you have to do is tag me at Praiseworthy Pets so I can thank you. And that is all for this episode, you wonderful cat and dog people. Meet me back here in two weeks for more It's Training Cats and Dogs.